We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart.
January 30th, 1972, thousands of people took to the streets of Derry as part of the civil rights movement. The British, uh, therefore, Stormont government had introduced internment laws uh, in August, which had effectively outlawed the right to protest. We'd seen hundreds of people arrested, regardless of whether they were involved in what was parliamentary or uh, IRA activity, shall we say. After the soldiers, though, had stopped firing at about 4 p.m., 13 people were dead and one more would die weeks later from his injuries. 50 years later, the family still seek justice. They're walking to remember their loved ones and the shared struggle for civil, civil rights on this island and across the globe. Welcome to the Tortoise Shack's coverage of the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. In this podcast, you'll hear from very proud Derry people, our friend Ethan Moore from the Irish Examiner, Professor Colin Harvey from Queen's, and uh, Tony Doherty, whose father was was shot and murdered that day. You'll also hear from Adrian Kerr, who's the creator of the Museum of Free Dairy. I want to prote- I want to thank Adrian particularly because uh, him and the staff at the museum allowed us here to record these podcasts in this amazing space that they've created. It was a privilege to sit here and do these interviews. I hope you guys get as much out of it as we did. Before you hear some of those interviews, um, I'm, I'm joined by my co-host, Martin. We, we journeyed up, Martin, and um, sitting amongst it, looking around, walking the streets of Derry, standing beside the murals, looking at the pictures of people who are no longer with us. What strikes you? I think for me, Tony, it was, I suppose, the lived history of the place. When we were walking around the streets, um, people were able to point to events that happened here on this spot or on this spot. And I was, I was particularly taken aback or partic- it was a particularly poignant moment when Tony pointed to where his dad was shot. And I thought to myself, God, that's, you have to walk past that every day. You, you don't get away from it. It's there all the time. And it's a lived history and a lived injustice. Uh, it's an injustice that just sits there every day, and it's a reminder. I don't know how you get past it. I don't know how anybody gets past it, Tony. Well, I, we were we were walking with uh, Tony. Like a, I will say, um, long-time listeners of the podcast will have heard Tony Doherty speak several times. Um, we're fortunate to have had him as a guest um, maybe four or five times prior to, to this week. But it was strange to be heading out just to grab a, a Sambo, Martin, as you do, and he says, Oh, where we are now is the where the last picture of my dad was taken. Um, you know, uh, you you probably do it better than I, but he was he was he was giving us a demonstration of how his dad was at the time. Yeah, yeah, and it's to think that people are that every corner, every brick, every stone. I mean, bu- bullet holes showing us where there's bullet holes. I mean, 
it's it's the, it's the history of the place, Tony. But there was, a, you know, he was able to sh- tell us where where people were shot. He was able to show us the lay of the land where the army came in. He was able to show us where the protesters were walking. And it's really an enclosed, quite an enclosed small area, except for that big kind of main street that we, I think we had a cup of coffee there, did we, Tony? Well, look, I mean, you got to you got to remember that morning. This is, you know, we're, we're talking about, it's January 1972. Um, the parachute regiment have been deployed to Derry. And this is only a few months since the parachute regiment had been in West Belfast and Bally Murphy and shot and murdered 10 people. I mean, and I only actually I checked this after the afterwards on, on the Bally Murphy thing. I saw one of the things was as recent as 2021. One of the findings was that the people in Barry Bally Murphy were in, innocent. Imagine to think that it took 49 years for someone to say that they were innocent, having been shot by this British Army regiment. And then you, you think about it in terms of, you know, so in terms of in place, they were told what they were doing, in effect, was illegal. You've Bernadette Devlin McCallisky on the back of a truck, you know, um, giving a speech. They're singing, as you heard in the intro to this, they're singing We Shall Overcome. And uh, as, as, as Tony said to us, his dad, Patrick, was um, pulling his jacket up uh, as if he was Batfink to try and deflect rubber bullets that were flying in his direction at that stage. Yeah, and the place was was awash with, with tear gas as well, Tony. So, you know, the confusion, the noise, I presume the panic. There must have been panic when shots rang out. Rang out. There must have been a lot of panic. Well, if you listen to the audio, you can hear the the people. Like, I mean, I, I again, I was listening to Aoife um, describing the situation from... Bernadette Devlin McCallisky's place and she said and one of the great regrets Bernadette had that she's expressed is that she heard um, gunfire and assumed it was rubber bullets but the sound she knows is different between a rubber bullet and a live round and it took her a few seconds to realize that they were live rounds and it was it was a few seconds before she said to people get out of here and she regrets those lost moments as uh, because they genuinely didn't think that there would be live rounds. And, you know, like we can go back to Tony's story about his dad, Patrick. And remember, like, I mean, I, I keep plug, plug in for the book. Tony's written three books about um, uh, about the, the conflict. And, you know, I would recommend them uh, about it. It's his, it's his story. It's his family story. But, like his dad was shot. Martin, we're sitting in the museum and his belt is hung up. And, then, and yeah. on his belt, there's a... Um, there's a circular hole in his belt from where he was shot in the back. Yeah. Yeah. And there was another man like he called out that he didn't want to die alone. And another man, Bernard McGuigan, went to help him and Bernard got shot in the head. You know, it's and, and both unarmed men just, you know, out at a civil rights protest, as any of us might be, Tony. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the. The story, as you, you've rightly pointed out, who, who does want to die alone? He knew he was dying. He was crawling away. And Bernard, Bernard, Bernard McGuigan, by all accounts, was waving a white handkerchief, thinking that this is the, you know, the signal to, to, to step away. And he was shot in the head and died, died on the spot. I mean, this, there was, I mean, we talk about Ireland um, and how we understand our past. And these stories, I would put it to you, many people listen to this the first time they've heard them. Oh, yeah, I'd agree with you. It wasn't something we covered in history in school, Tony. It just wasn't something we did. 
we didn't talk about it a whole lot. And if we're honest about it, we didn't talk about it a whole lot. It came up on news cycles when there was an incident. But in between those spaces, we didn't have conversations. Well, uh, no, there was also, I put it to you, Martin, that there's still a mentality in Ireland that they were as um, in, in Dublin and in, in parts of the South that they're each as bad as each other. Now, you tell me how the guy, Soldier, Soldier F, who, who kneeled down and took what I think the Savile Report called uh, a hunter's shot. You tell me how he's as bad as a guy who maybe picked up a, a, a brick and threw it in his direction. Tell yeah. me how they're tell me how they're the same thing, because if we don't reconcile that, if we can if or if we can reconcile that with ourselves and, and pretend that they are the same. Then we're no better than the, the guy who says that teenager in 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 Palestine who threw a bottle at, at a at a, an Israeli soldier deserved to be shot. He absolutely yeah. did not. And this is where we this is where we're going, where we're when and the, the language matters. So what happened 50 years ago resonates today. And when we say, you know, the, the movement that the that the families, the, the, the families have have created, it is a global movement. And I think that's the you know, the, 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 the theme of this entire weekend, this entire week, is one world, one struggle. Yeah, one world, one struggle. I think that's a good point now to talk about what we have coming up next, Tony. Next, we go to reporter and Bloody Sunday family member, Aoife Grace Moore. Aoife is a reporter with the Irish Examiner, award-winning uh, reporter with the Irish Examiner. And she has... Uh, very close ties with Derry, born, bred in Derry, and her cousin, Tony Doherty, who we mentioned a few minutes ago in our conversation. Um, Tony is Aoife's cousin, and he was, she was able to introduce us to Tony. And we, it gives you a real sense of lived history. Again, we'll come back to lived history. And it gives you a real sense of lived history. And Aoife had said to us, and as you will hear, that for her, it's still a very real struggle, even though she wasn't born at the time. We'll go to Aoife now. We are delighted to be joined by award-winning reporter. Not not just any old award, by the way, but award-winning reporter with the Irish Examiner, political correspondent, and very, very proud Derry girl, mm-hmm. Aoife Grace Moore. Aoife, how are you? Thanks for having me. I can't believe you followed me the whole way to Derry. Yeah. Oh, it's, um, <laughs> oh look, we got when we got the nod, we couldn't not come, and uh, it was it was incredible to actually be said we could come up and record in the the, the museum. So so um, yeah, it, I was flattered. I don't know if Martin he just expects it these days. Yeah. What's it like being on home turf? I grand, like I just feel exactly the same when I'm up in Derry. Derry never changes, and neither do I. Could do we so burn up? Probably. <laughs> the pints are cheap up here. And that's one of the biggest draws. Oh, well, we 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 put that to the test at some stage. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, we may just yes. <laughs> if you are here, though, um, obviously you're, you're covering events in the run up to the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, and you've. Um, You've been always proud of, of where you're from and, and of, of your city and of your of, of your community. Coming in, you can see that it, this means I was taken aback by some of it. And, and you can tell straight away this is mm-hmm. something of great significance. There are camera crews outside. There are people taking pictures, long SLR lenses. And does this, does this feel bigger than previously and, and something more significant? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's 50 years on Sunday since, you know, the British Army unleashed murder and mayhem on the streets of Derry. And I think it's a testament to Derry people in that we have not let it go. 
and we don't let people forget what happened. I think, and I have noticed this in the last couple of days, you know, I was talking to somebody about the press um, coverage of it and they had to assign 500 passes for international press to come to Derry on Sunday for the rally. But I do think there is a finality to this, as in we've had the Savile inquiry, we've been the attempted through the courts to get the soldiers in front of the courts and now it's 50 years and I think this will be the biggest event but I do think there's a finality date. I think this is like a chapter closing. Mm. I think that's why uh, the families and the Bully Sunday Trust want to do it so well. You know, it's why it's going to be so big because I do think this is kind of the last big thing that they will do and it's sad in a way as well because a lot of people survivors and a lot of people who were left behind are now dying you know it's 50 years since it happened so there's a lot of people now here are no longer with us who would have campaigned and were a big part of it so yeah this is the biggest event and i've obviously grown up i've been at every single bloody sunday march since i was born but um yeah this this feels like the biggest thing is there a sense that the the international media is very interested in this, but not so much the, the Southern Irish media? Yeah, I have always found that, you know, even as a child, there was always, you know, French journalists, Italian journalists, like you know, a lot of Japanese media, even when I was younger, I remember always thinking that. And the British media, of course, were always here, you know, the Guardian was always kind of on this and there was always, you know, British media, but there is, um, I don't know if it's a cognitive dissonance, or what it is, I think the South, the Republic has caught up a bit, but the international attention is definitely a lot wider. And I think the press in the South have not given it the kind of due care and attention because although it was the British government's decision um, to reopen or open the inquiry, but we very much relied on the British press for that kind of pressure. It was not forthcoming from Dublin, whether in Leinster House or the media just on you, you mentioned that it's actually funny myself and Martin were talking to John Schwartz from The Intercept um, a week ago and off air he, he he was able to tell us that he knew about the story of Bloody Sunday mm. and I mean he's sitting in, in New York and he's able to tell us about the story of Bloody Sunday we're in this museum and it's surrounded by um, images that are quite striking but the bit, the main mural on the way in says anti-sectarian mm. um, and it does, and again, the banner behind you right now says Civil Rights Association. It does feel very much like it's something like this should be more vis- visible across the island of Ireland because that's where we talk away, away, away those green and orange issues. Mm-hmm. And I, we do, we do think, especially in the South, we like to say, well, that sits in that category and that mm-hmm. sits in that category. Do you feel like somewhere like this museum itself is a, is a starting place for some of these conversations? I think um, what I would say is that the British Army weren't asking people what their religion was when they were shooting them in the back on Bloody Sunday. And, you know, one of the main campaigners in the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association was Ivan Cooper, who was himself a Presbyterian. So it has always been, you know, anti-sectarian. And I do think that the notion of the green and orange and being able to look up at the North or look up at Derry and say, Aye, but they're both as bad as each other and they're always at each other, it gives people the right then to not pay enough attention to it because once it becomes a sectarian issue, a northern issue, you don't have to care anymore. And there's been quite a bit of, of toing and froing recently about the reaction or the historic reaction of those in the south to those in the north. Um, do you think that there are some of the criticisms on both sides are fair or do you think that it, it, it's all leaning towards one side? 
I think the criticism that the government in Dublin abandoned nationalists in the north during the troubles is a hundred percent fair and accurate. Even outside of Bloody Sunday, I could name you at least five children who were murdered in Derry by British Army bullets or rubber bullets or live rounds. And if even if you don't want to pay any attention to the big things like Bally Murphy and Bloody Sunday, when there is an instance of children in their school uniforms being shot and Dublin not taking any steps to intervene in any way, shape or form is unforgivable. And I, I have been talking a lot about a United Ireland this weekend and I would say that there is a lot of talk about how we get nationalists and, or how we get unionists and loyalist people on board in a United Ireland. There also needs to be a reckoning that a lot of nationalists in the North feel totally abandoned by Dublin and there is a serious resentment about the lack of action from Dublin and that is something that I think Dublin doesn't even realise and something that we would need to talk about if we we're talking about any notion of a United Ireland. We're going to echo that in much of, of we see with, with how a lot of the things that we've covered over the last um, 24 months, particularly even speaking to loyalist and unionist communities, they know in a way that they're not looked upon as as part of the conversation, mm-hmm. particularly not in Dublin, but it, there's this element of there were there were no there were good unionists and good loyalists we could talk to, but there were no real good nationalists in a way. And that narrative, and I know people have been kicking up in in the media recently. Uh, Joe Brawley got an, uh, an awful <laughs> became persona non grata for for saying what was basically true. Um, but like, it's not just bloody Sunday. You were you were you weren't born. Mm-hmm. You know, I spoke to Mick O'Toole a couple of a week ago, and he was eighteen months when. And it, it formed, he said it was one of the, and he was struggling to come up with the phrase, but it said it was part of the infrastructure of his young life. It, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's intergenerational now. And even like you're going to, you're, you yourself are interviewing people this week, um, who weren't born, but mm-hmm. it's shaped their lives. And mm-hmm. we don't have a, 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 we've never really addressed that issue, as I see. Do you think from your point of view that the, those people that you're speaking to, the second generation, um, and I know you said there's a finality to, to this 50th, but do you think there's actual a way of coming out of this and saying, this might be what truth and reconciliation looks like, given how we can't have justice, because mm. justice seems denied? Yeah. I've been thinking about this quite a lot, actually, in the run-up to Bloody Sunday. The fact of the matter is, is that we're not going to get justice. The British Army or the British government are going to protect the British Army, and, and that's what they're going to do. But I'm a big believer in if something, <laughs> you can't just complain about things if you can do something about it. So maybe justice and the, maybe the way that we cope with this is doing this, is the Museum of Free Dairy, is people like me who weren't even alive and but have grown up in the shadow of Bloody Sunday. And I love my life and I'm very proud of being a Bloody Sunday family and everything that the campaign has done. Maybe that's the only type of justice that we're going to get that we need to carry it on and we need to make sure that the British government never forget and I think we have done that very well <laughs> so far but I think that is the only way that we're going to ever claw back some of the trauma that was inflicted on us is that we will we have to ensure that everybody knows what happened and I think that goes for Bally Murphy I think it goes for um even the and the victims of IRA and paramilitary violence mm. as well. We need to keep talking about this stuff because for a lot of people, and I've often thought this, for people who have lost loved ones to paramilitary violence, they're not getting a salve on Kyrie. 
you'd be lucky if there's any criminal charges. And like time moves on and these people are supposed to be left behind to pick up the pieces. So I think the only way the North is ever going to reconcile is that we have to keep talking about it. And I think it bores the life out of certain people in the Republic and certain people in England, this notion that you should just get over it. But I don't believe anybody would say that if it happened to them. Can I ask a question? And we're sitting in the 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 the, the Free Dairy Museum or the Museum of Free Dairy, as, as Tony keeps correcting me. Do you think that this should be replicated in Dublin, in Cork, in, in Tralee? I would just like a bit more attention given to the North, even as something as easy as schools and the school curriculum and history. You know, the amount of people, and I'm 30, when I played GAA, we girls from Roscommon and Clare and Galway, most of them didn't even know that Catholics weren't allowed to vote. You know, the base facts of where the trouble started and where they came from, people don't even know that. So I do think schools and education is the only way we're going to change things. And I do find that young people, people my age in the Republic are interested. They do know and they understand the con- the context around the troubles. But I do think there needs to be a serious investment in education and teaching young Irish people north and south because there's another history here. You know, we're talking about Bloody Sunday, but there are thousands of families across the north who have lost people through paramilitary violence and that's something that needs to be discussed and ed- and people need to be educated on. So that's where I would actually really like to see a change. We are hoping to speak to um, one of the founders of Her Loyal Voice um, in, the, in the few days as well and we'll be talking from that perspective and we, you know, we've covered it with, with Sam and with, with um, Gareth as well and we continue to, but I do... Also on the way in, I saw banners saying unity referendum now, and and obviously that is very much something that that um, you know we speak about as as a shared island approach. We're talking to Colin Harvey as well. You recently spoke at the shared island event, mm-hmm. and you made a really good point. And I think it's funny. I think it should be obvious what you said, yet it was so many people stood up and went, oh, yeah. And you pointed out that this isn't about flags or anthems. This is about inequality, educational attainment, um, housing, all of those needs. Is, is, are we able to have those conversations about that now? Or do you think we're still going to get dragged into this simple, like when you have a thing in the Irish Times where they run a poll and say, everybody wants a United Ireland, but not if it means you have to hop on one leg on a Thursday mm. for 10 minutes. It was mm. Strange stuff. I would also say that poll, somebody made that point at the Ireland's Future event on Saturday, that if you put a poll out, and no matter what the question is, if it's if you have to pay more tax, of mm. course people are going to say no. <laughs> it's immediate. So um, I don't put that much stock in that. But yeah, I the point I was making was that for all this talk about a united Ireland and flags and anthems, I couldn't care less. You know, Derry is on the top of every list that you don't want to be on. The rates of childhood poverty, long-term unemployment, debt, addiction. Like Derry doesn't have a detox centre. This study, the second study in Northern Ireland where drugs are rampant and this hangover, intergenerational hangover, of trauma from the troubles and it doesn't have a detox centre. Derry has been totally and utterly neglected and I was at that event with Declan Kearney from Sinn Féin and Colm Eason from SDLP and I said to them, it is the politicians who have failed. Stormont has failed, Derry mm. is the second city and it is treated <laughs> so poorly and it's because of complacency and the and the legacy of the troubles. So all this talk about getting rid of the tricolour and whether we're going to sing Andy Desco was the, the national anthem. I don't care. 
I want people to have better outcomes in their life. I want people to be able to buy good, secure housing. I want people to have jobs. I think the, it's easy to have the, the argument about the flag because that's the easy part of it. The other part of it is like, what about the NHS? What about all the people in Derry on a waiting list for mental health treatment? What happens to them in a United Ireland? So I do understand why people want to talk about the cultural issues, but I am way more concerned about the bread and butter, about how people are going to love because dairy people have been failed by partition, but I am not convinced they are going to be saved by a United Ireland either. That's a very good point, actually. And I, I, I agree with you. There are bread and butter issues, inequality, access to access to healthcare, access to work, access to education. These are the issues that really, really matter, but neither the Southern Government nor the Northern Assembly is anywhere close to discussing these issues. We mm-hmm. seem to be caught in this time warp of flags and anthems, whereas the actual on-the-ground conversation is a different conversation altogether. How do we marry the two? How do we get rid of this, I suppose, notional nonsense and get on with the real bread and butter issues? Listen, in this coalition government with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Green Party, there is no point talking about a border poll or a unity referendum because it is not going to happen. No. Sinn Féin also don't have a monopoly on United Ireland, but they, but Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party have allowed Sinn Féin to take up the conversation because they are the only party talking about it. I think, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but any notion of a white paper or research or anything like that in United Ireland is not going to happen under this coalition government. And I would also say that the SNP had a 900-page document and a white paper about how independence would work, and they still lost. So it's not to say that once you get the research done, everything's going to fall into place. I am more, this is why I get a bit frustrated with the conversation about United Ireland, because it seems so far away, and I am quite interested in the here and now and actively trying to make people's lives better. You know, I said this during the talk as well, but like young loyalist boys in working class communities have the worst educational outcomes in the North. So it's not just a nationalist problem. It's not just a dairy problem. You know, the North in general has a very low rate of income, you know, very high rates of debt and it's all legacy from the troubles. And I just feel like a lot of time people in the North are just trying to get their head above water. So then you come under their house and you're talking to them, like, well, you want to get rid of the tricolor? They don't care. No. They just want to go to work in the morning and take their wings to school. It's, it's all very notional. And I think without any actual research, without white papers, without academic work behind it, because people want data. People want the evidence. They want the statistics to say, if we had a United Ireland, this is what it would look like. But without that, we're all just talking in a vacuum. There's one interest, a couple of things in that, but one thing that interests me is the the educational piece. I spoke to the children commissioner with, with, with Vicky on uh, on a police about the separation of schools and how mm-hmm. they still maintain, mm-hmm. you know, they break down green and orange in yeah. many ways, and that is a huge um, issue we have mm-hmm. that we need to that needs to be addressed. Um, you mentioned. How we changed, how how the troubles are taught, how the history is taught, that is a barrier in itself. If we if we can't mm-hmm. actually, if we have children who maybe even live one street over from another, but mm-hmm. th- but they don't go to the same school. Yeah, and it was one of the main recommendations of the Good Friday Agreement is that we would phase out religious schools and that the the education was going to be um, integrated. It's something um, for all his faults. It's something the secretary, the Northern Ireland secretary, Brandon Lewis, is very passionate about. Mm. But there has been no movement on it. And I would say I'm only thirty, and I'm a very 
liberal um, young person. I didn't have a Protestant friend until I was 17. I went to a Catholic primary school. I went to a Catholic secondary school. I grew up in a nationalist estate. When would I ever meet a Protestant? Mm. Because how am I supposed to meet any Protestants? So I never had a Protestant friend until I was 16 or 17. And that's very normal. Mm. That's very normal in the North. And it's not the children's fault. It's But it is... Northern Ireland still breaks down green and orange. Structural. Yeah, it's a structural and issue. And even if it's not green and orange now, it strikes me that some of it is also, it's, it's class, class has been baked in now mm-hmm. because we see, as you said, educate, social mobility in the North mm-hmm. is really, really low. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, part of the, the success, I'm going to say, of the nationalist community is that they've closed the gap and, and mm-hmm. overtaken in terms of, and we saw that in the nonsense that was said, you know, that they were infiltrating mm-hmm. by getting on. I mean, Getting that, on everywhere. That, that mindset, that has to be, that weed has to be pulled up. That's on its way out. That um, mindset of, you know, unionist supremacy and, you know, uh, the, the nationalists are getting educated and they're getting, <sighs> and they're getting all these jobs. That's, that's on the way out. That's not what young people want. It's not people my age want. You know, people, as I said, people just want to get up and have a good life and look after their children. And that notion that, you know, they're getting on everywhere. They've good jobs in civil service and they're journalists in Illinois. That's from 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, um, my friend Susan McKay, she's a Protestant and she said that it reminded her of, you know, when she was growing up with that kind of demons are getting on everywhere. Mm. And, uh, but it also comes from a sense of frustration that because loyalist communities have stagnated, you know, we know about the rates of drug addiction, the educational outcomes for young loyalist boys. So it is a type of frustration. But again, it's a failure of politics. Mm. It's a failure of the politicians. We have not invested in our communities and we have allowed, you know, drugs to run rampant across Northern Ireland. And along with that, the paramilitary violence in the loyalist communities has not um, reduced in the peace process because and these, these communities feel totally left behind and abandoned by the Good Friday Agreement. And they should. Why, why wouldn't they? So I do think... For all the joking that we did about them, it's getting on everywhere. There is a base of, it comes from a base of frustration and they have a right to be frustrated. Before you come in, Martin, Sam put it very well, Sam McElwain. He said he is a working class loyalist unionist who came from a working class background who saw when he had, you know, maybe one income, they could afford a home. Mm. They could, um, you know, live a re- relatively good life, take a holiday once a year. Um, because as it's happened all across the globe, you need now two incomes. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't, you can't afford, if you want, if you have to run a car, it's more money, childcare costs, all of these things that are all, a, and while others have seen that, that, that wealth gap, that class issue comes up time and time again. Mm-hmm. And it does seem that in any of the, I'm going to say attempts to cause trouble by some of the people in other communities, they've been picking on working class kids who don't see a future and actually abusing them and I don't think that's given any, first of all I don't think it's given any credence in the south we just say they're at it again mm-hmm. we don't talk we don't look at it we don't like to look under the hood and then the second thing is it's Stormont still busily saying we're going to have another election in, in May mm-hmm. to stay in a bottleneck mm-hmm. I don't I don't know I'm so, I sound like I'm really I, have a, I don't think I have a question I think I'm just having a rant well I, I have a question and it's about the bottleneck and I was going to come to this at the moment we have this bottleneck it's called the protocol and we we have a bottleneck and it's being used again to derail any forward motion Mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland. There's no point in us talking about it because we've talked it in and out. But do you see a place past this, a point Mm -hmm. past where we are at the moment? 
I think this election is going to be incredibly interesting. Um, we know from the census that was done in the north that this is probably the first election where we will see that um, the unionist community or people who identify as unionists are not the dominant community in the north anymore. We have every poll um, that has come out um, about the political parties in the shape of Stormont. We know that it will not be a unionist majority. It would be highly unlikely it would be a unionist majority. The DUP is hemorrhaging voters and all this pontificating about the protocol has nothing to do with Brexit but everything to do with the fact that the DUP are hemorrhaging voters on the right to the TUV and the UUP and on the left to Alliance, the Green Party and People for Profit because those young people from those unionist communities who would typically have been DUP voters are leaving in droves. They do not see themselves reflected in the DUP's policies. They do not see them uh, a better life given in the opportunities the DUP are offering. So this our bottleneck about the protocol is all politics. It's cynical. I find it really disrespectful to the people of Northern Ireland. And I think this next election will be really interesting. I don't think the Sinn Féin are going to career home. No. I think they've got a job on their hands. You know, even in Derry, we're sitting here in Derry, they've got two new MLAs who've only been in the job six months and they do seem relatively popular, but we don't know how popular they are until they get to the polls. So I don't think Sinn Féin are going to romp home I, either. I, I saw a Green Party um, candidate uh, last night tweeting about the Lisbon mo- Green Party in, in the North candidate tweeting about the Lisbon model for for um, drug decriminalisation, and I thought to myself, that's that's clever because th- that's the kind of thing where we just talked about the drug issue mm-hmm. and how you address it. And I thought, see, this is where they will see that those votes may actually go because people mm-hmm. might see beyond that and, and look at what actually they can do. Yeah, and people my age, like we don't vote the way our mommies and daddies voted. You know, um, that's it's not the way it works anymore. You know, my sister-in-law, my brother's fiance, she would typically have come from, you know, a DUP voting family. I don't think that girl has ever voted for the DUP in her life because, you know, people are just looking to see themselves reflected. Now, the green and orange doesn't interest the majority of us. Mm-hmm. It doesn't offer us anything. And like I read Bernadette Devlin's book. She wrote a, a book uh, when she was 22, when she was an MP. And she always said if the working classes on both sides could get together and actually fight for what they are owed, we in Northern Ireland be in a much better shape, but we are so distracted mm. pulling each other's hair because we go to different chapels. And I think that is the big thing. Like the class system in the Republic really shocked me. I didn't know I was working class until I got to Dublin because everybody, <laughs> everybody in Derry is the same. There's never any rich people. So but I didn't a, know but, I was working class. But there's a huge 20% of people in, in, in Republic of Ireland who don't think they're working class because they have aspirations of being mm. middle class. Notions. So yeah. And, and they will say, Oh, I'm not like them ones. Yeah. So, so. I, I, I didn't, this notion of a class system was so alien to me because mm. everyone in Derry is the same. Like, Hi, there's nice houses in the Colmore Road, but they are not the majority of the people in Derry. So I didn't even know I was working class. But my point being that the green and orange doesn't often for anyone. And we should be advocating and shouting from the rooftops that we deserve better in the north across every community. And we have been neglected. We have not. The peace process has not given us the dividend that we were promised. And it is up to the politicians to fix it. I'd even extend that further. Working class communities in the South as well, mm-hmm. just as alienated, just mm-hmm. as left out of the loop, just as left behind. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that in housing, we've seen it in healthcare. And now we're starting to see in climate action. And we are seeing, of course, yeah, and we are starting to see in climate action. So there's a lot of, and I think Colin Harvey has done a huge amount of work. And when he's talking about a rights-based society for the future, there are rights that are right across the island. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not just Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland. These are rights that we could all do with. 
Yeah, and I made the point actually on Saturday. I was saying that if we got a united Ireland, I don't want the North just subsumed into the Republic because mm. it's not that the Republic is some nirvana that has it all figured out. Definitely not. But there is an opportunity for the best things for the NHS, for instance, the best things of each, uh, the best things of each region to be brought into a new Ireland. You know, I don't want the weird cultural Catholic hangover that the Republic has. And I know it's in the North too, but you know, there are good things in, in each region and they should be brought forward together in a united Ireland. I don't want the Republic subsumed in the North or vice versa. We should be advocating for something better. We, we deserve so much better. We have a, a unique, and I mean, I think it's globally unique opportunity to redesign the Ireland of Ireland as a rights-based country. Now, nobody else has that, but we have that opportunity in front of us. And sooner or later, the penny will drop with enough people that we can create something out of the two that is better than the two, and way better than the two. This is my final point, and I'll put it to you, that we talk about the Constitution uh, and how the 1916 proclamation was never really, never enforced, never came. All of this, say, all these grandiose statements never came to pass. We talk about the failure of the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. So this is our third bite of the cherry. And this is an opportunity for, and, and it's not for old gits like me and Martin either. It's, it is for people of a, your generation and younger to actually help this, help this along, you know, talking at these events. But do you think that that's where the momentum is going to come? Because I, I, do you think change comes from the bottom or are we going to have to wait on everybody else to catch up? As everyone, I would say that listens to this podcast knows, uh, the Irish government is always behind the mood of the public when it came to marriage equality, when it came to repeal. The conversation has started. It has moved on without Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gain in the Green Party. Mm. They all claim, you know, and they all claim to be parties who advocate for United Ireland, but they have a loud Sinn Féin. They dominate the conversation. I think that's a failure on their part. And I think realistically, if we are looking uh we're talking about a border poll, Sinn Féin are going to play a massive part in it. And it's not because they are this great gatekeepers of Irish unity. It's because the other parties have not done enough. Mm. They have they have allowed Sinn Féin to take up this mantle. I don't think that um helps anyone. I think there needs to be a plurality. Um, of voices and opinions and parties when it comes to this. But I do think the conversation has started. I just am not sure how quickly the talk is going to be. I, I Can I say one point on that, Martin, because it's repeated often where members of those parties will say, we support United Ireland. And then they will say, but not in my lifetime. Or they'll say, you know, I, I heard recently at, the, at one of the Shared Island events before that you were, you, that you were at recently, there was one, I think it was the second one back, where a very prominent commentator from the Republic said, this is how it would work. And then he said, but it, it'll take about 50 years. And I just thought that was a really strange thing to, to say when clearly that's not the truth. You know, that's not, that's actually, that is that men- mentality of, I'm going to say it, our current government. Yes, we're for something, but we're not actually for it. We're, 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 and, and you're right that where they, where they have stepped away, it has mentioned Fane has mm-hmm. been left the field. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a huge tactical mistake because oh. as Martin puts it, hope comes from actually building something better. It does. It does. And I'm going to wrap it there. Aoife Grace Moore sitting here in the Dairy Free Museum. <laughs> Did it, it again. <laughs> it is such a pleasure to talk to you at Thank home you so ground. Much. And Thanks we are delighted me. to come up here and have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Cheers, folks. Talk to you all very soon.
We're going to hear next from Professor Colin Harvey, himself a proud dairyman. Uh, you'll have listeners again will have heard from him several times over the, the, the last few years on this podcast and his work with the shared island, um, the movement that the, the essentially what I would call the citizens assembly for a, a unity Ireland, what it looks like before the government, uh, the governments on either side get involved. Um, but where after we recorded, interestingly enough, uh, Colin, Colin received a letter from Amnesty International that was sent to the British government calling for his protection. And the reason that is, is because we're talking about the history of, of violence on this island and how things have, I'm going to say that the legacy, but the legacy is still living on. I mean, there's political interference in his appointments. There's been there's been political the members of the DUP have spoken publicly against him and he has had threats on his life. So when we look at people like Colin Harvey and we see him talking about what it was like to be um, growing up in the shadow of, of Bloody Sunday and how it formed his opinion and, and, and moving to Belfast, becoming an academic and, and doing what he's done, none of that is over. It's still, it's still going on when you have to have Amnesty International involve themselves. And I will say this before I hit um, play on the, on the interview. Disappointed that Irish media in the South, particularly out of Dublin, has failed to show any sort of interest nor support for the, the ongoing bullying and intimidation of people who want to have that conversation. Um, thanks to Colin for, again for his time. He's, he's always been very generous with us, uh, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Welcome back. This is part of our ongoing coverage of the run-up, the events um, on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. It's been uh, a lot. We've had a few conversations so far and I've been looking forward to this one because regular listeners will be well aware that we've spoken to uh, Professor Colin Harvey from Queen's um, several times about what uh, the opportunity, and Martin, you spoke about it with Aoife Grace Moore yesterday, the opportunity that Ireland, as a all Ireland has, to actually have a rights-based society and no one speaks better than it about that, that we've, that we've spoken to then Colin himself. Colin, thanks for coming back to have a chat with us. Thank you very much. Really delighted to be back again. No, it's, 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 it is, it's something our listeners have really picked up on. It's, it's gathered a lot of pace. Some of the, some of the conversations we've had, but I do want to, go back to the, the the genesis of this week. Um, I spoke to Mick O'Toole last week, who is, I think he was 18 months when Bloody Sunday happened. And yet he said at eight years of age in the car going to mass, they were, they were still aware of it. It grew up as part of the infrastructure of his life um, and formed much of the um, the backdrop to a lot of it. I know Mick would be very adamant, you know, to talk about all atrocities, but it certainly was a formational one. Even the, even as someone who was only 18 months at that time, you would have been in a similar uh, age group, I, I, I put it to you, Colin. And... Well, I, I was born in September 1970 in Derry. Um, born, grew up, born and bred in Derry, you know, and uh, I was thinking, thinking the other day, my, my, my late mother and father, you know, were married in August 1969 in Derry in St. Eugene's Cathedral. So they would have had to make their way through a, a very, very, uh, you know, the battle that was raging in the bog side mm. at the time. So Bloody Sunday, you know, obviously, uh, I was very, very young at the time. Um, but it shaped everything really about growing up in the city and, you know, the powerful, powerful impact it had. Not not just, you know, awful, awful, tragic day itself, but then the legacy of Bloody Sunday 
uh, for Derry, but really for the island as a whole, you know, and the legacy of that. You know, people have pointed out, you know, that, that Bloody Sunday was really an instigator of much that followed as well. That real sense that people have been beaten off the streets, that the civil rights movement had been beaten off the streets, and then everything that that, that followed since. I suppose I thought that just this week with the British government and their proposals around amnesty and all of that, I just wonder sometimes, has it really been properly acknowledged and recognised, you know, actually in England and Britain, around the world, just what happened here? You know, still, even with all the apologies and even with the reports that we've seen, I sometimes wonder about that because, you know, there's recent report from the police, police ombudsman here around collusion. And, you know, the scale, depth and extent of what the state got up to in the north is is really staggering, even for people who are very, very aware of the context. And see, when I was growing up, right, uh, if you people who said this, you know, were regarded as marginal people on the extremes of, but now it's sort of taken as almost commonsensical. I think we need to stop sometimes and realize that, you know, that wasn't always the position. And I think there's still work to do. Like I I've said, I, the stuff the British state got up to here is, is rogue state territory. People are talking about Latin American context in terms of this amnesty. And I think that's the way we need to begin to th- think about this and frame it. It's a good point, Colin. And it's not getting the same coverage down here, even though, as you say, all those who said all through the years that there was some really in-depth collusion going on here, they were very marginalized, but they still are being in the South. Yeah, I think, you know, um, to mention Joe Brawley and Bernadette Michalski and the comments over, uh, you know, the Christmas period that, that gained a lot of traction and quite a ferocious debate emerged. Like for Northerners like me, it, those comments resonated really, really very deeply indeed. It seems to me remarkable that if you want to use this terminology and, and people aren't understandably always comfortable with it, but of Northern nationalism, Republicanism, Irish citizens who are born, brought up in the North, European citizens. Now, it's almost as if our experiences, you know, even my own experiences of growing up in Derry in the 70s and 80s don't count. They don't matter. We can't talk about them openly and honestly, actually. And I was very struck with Joe Brawley's comments. You know, Joe was very, very, you know, articulately and sincerely expressing the reality of what, what it was like to grow up in a society that was in the middle of a conflict. But it's almost as if those experiences don't matter or we should not talk about them or even worse that we can't talk about them openly and honestly, which when we're thinking about 100 years on from what happened 100 years ago and the treaty and all of that seems a bit uh, remarkable, really. Isn't there a cognitive dissonance there whereby everybody... A lot of people piled on Joe Brawley and Bernadette yeah. at Devlin said, you're wrong. We cared. We gave a shit. I I, I gave a shit. I was sitting in um, my front room in Waterford and I gave a shit. And then and then at the same time, we have statements from senior politicians down here, including the Tarnished and saying, you know, 100 years today, the island of Ireland became an independent state. And, you know, all of, you know these kind of. Where you go, mm, do we do we then say to the to the people 
who identify as Irish and always have in, in, in another part of the island that were never allowed to assume their identity, that you can't talk about that because it makes us uncomfortable to acknowledge that, that, that this is part yeah. of it. And I do think that we do, there's the idea that we can't speak about it. We're, we're sitting in the, free, in the, der, the Museum of Free Dairy. We're sitting there and the banner behind us is civil, civil rights uh, banners. It's all about, you know, um, the ability, like some of it is as simple as the, 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 the winning the right to vote. Some of it is simple as, as, you know, getting jobs in the civil service. And yet if we, if we talk about these things, uh, particularly in the South, they seem to say, say, well, they're them ones and them ones are both bad. So can we not just um, focus on, you know, the, whatever else matters now, today. Yeah, I think the problem is it, it resonates right down to today. You know, I think Joe and Bernadette were, you know, developing a sense of, and picking up a sense really of sort of approved and unapproved Northerners. There's a sort of McCarthyite paranoia on the island. Every Northerner has to go through a sort of, almost like an establishment check to see if you're an approved Northerner or if you're an unapproved Northerner. And I think there's an there's an element of paranoia around that. I've even found it myself. Like it's just a, and I'll name it for what it is at the moment. Politically, there's a there's a political paranoia about the Shinners on the island. So there's almost every northerner has to pass some kind of imaginary, you know, are you this or are you that test? Um, and I think that just reduces the complexity of what's happening. I think some of the language the last few weeks has been offensive to somebody like me. I'm as Irish as anybody on this island, right? Um, an EU citizen as well, but I, I'm Irish. That Where the line on the map got drawn, you know, literally, you know, in the dairy context, it could have gone either way, right? In terms of the West Bank, the dairy where I grew up could have gone either way, determined that we, we grew up. My man, Da, you know, are, are now both passed away, no longer with us, you know, they drilled into us a really formidable sense that they were brought up as second-class citizens in their own city. Like, my mother had a really sharp awareness of that and was determined that that was not going to happen to to, to her children. Not only that, second-class citizens and the discrimination that happened. You know, British Army were, were slaughtering people on the street. You know, and I think we just have to... Just name that sometimes for what it, what it, what it was, what happened, the atrocity that happened in Derry and Bloody Sunday, and then the impact that that had. But because of, in a sense, the civil war on the island never stopped. <laughs> like some some politicians and the main establishment parties in the south are still fighting the civil war. They may have piled up together, but they're fighting a different civil war now. It's, I, I I agree with you, and I think that's very obvious that what we're in is in the last throes of civil war politics in mainstream Irish media, uh, Irish politics. And there isn't just an apathy towards those in Northern, Northern Ireland. There's an animosity. It, yeah. it, it's, it, it, it spreads beyond apathy. It spreads beyond not caring. And as you said, if you don't tick the right boxes, like don't be a Republican with a, a criminal record. You're never, ever, ever going to be seen as as a voice of people up north and yet and yet they are they do represent people they do speak for people you have to listen regardless of whether you agree or disagree do you think that the inability of 
I won't say the Irish people because I think the Irish people are very good at addressing this. Absolutely. But the, yeah. the, the inability of the Irish establishment to address our own history means that it's almost impossible to get the British to address theirs. Yeah, I think it's a great, great point. Um, I th- you, you referred to it yourself. The people are well ahead of some of the political parties on this. Like, you know, d- d- despite being pummeled repeatedly by certain elements of the the media, the pe- people of Ireland keep giving the wrong answer. You know, they keep saying, actually, we still believe in a united Ireland. We still believe in. So I think that we shouldn't mistake what happens um, in sort of establishment politics to what people actually uh, think. And I think that's absolutely important. Some of the stuff in the last few weeks as well, like it's sort of Mac- the McCarthyite paranoia, yeah. you know, this thing that, you know, if Sinn Féin come to government in the South, there's a risk that, you know, the island will be led from the North and they secret shadowy figures in Belfast. You can, know? I, can I push and in I on that, Colin? Because yeah. I think what's really uh, funny about that and ridiculous. Yet, yet yeah. ridiculous is, is, yeah. is yeah. if you said, because it yeah. said in the Irish Times, yeah. Sinn Féin yeah. is run by a, a, the Politburo. That was the, that was the, the sub, the sub headline on, on one particular article. And then there was a, uh, there was a real, they took offense to the balance of, say, Sinn Féin's governance being, let's say it's a, a five tree split with five of the five people being in the north of the island. This was good. So the idea was there were other, there were, there were good Irish people and less than Irish people. And we had too many less than Irish people. Now, you can you can say that with any party how they do their business behind closed doors. Where's the you know we can it's fair to question democratic processes all the time. It's always fair to do that. But I I think as you said McCarthy I actually is probably a bit mild. So this was the inferences were quite plain and quite quite obvious for all to see. And yet then they tell you Colin that you know you're actually you're t- you're finding offense where it is you're actually imagining this because it's not it's you know no 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 we we treat you as an equal and then you read that in one of the biggest newspapers on the island of ireland for 100 years well just to maybe contextualize a bit and just speaking as a northerner in this context from Derry, who sold out and lives in Belfast now, you know, in terms of uh, no harm being having the island run from Derry or Belfast, by the way, just in terms of, but in terms of my own experience, like think about their, what I, you know, people like me face, we get it in the neck from unionism, or I do political unionism and loyalism here all the time, 24 7. Uh, it has a practical impact. You might have seen before Christmas, there's suggestions that I wasn't appointed to some Bill of Rights panelist because of all this, you know, the, Political parties have been to see the university about me, whatever. So it's if if only it was Twitter, I'd be happy enough. But not only do you get the sort of full onslaught from political unionism and loyalism, you also get many elements of the southern, you know, to name it, my own government, right? Because I'm an Irish citizen, and prominent elements in Dublin also, you know, casting aspersions about you, sort of mapping that paranoia, and then being worried about doing anything at all that might upset unionism. But there's very rarely any concern about upsetting can, people like me or ask, Northern nationalism or republicanism. And uh, The last and time we spoke, Colin, yeah. the last time we spoke, yeah. you were getting, let's be, let's be fair, you were getting torrents of abuse and there was political, yeah. there was political double dealings going on to, to make it difficult in terms of an appointment process that's well documented in yeah. the, the meet the press in the north and I allegedly mean, yes allegedly okay let's say allegedly but 
Did you get anybody? Yeah. Did anybody pick up the phone to you and say, "Look, X person from the Irish X thing, and we'd like to do a piece on this because it does seem," or or are we still in that 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 mindset as as you as you put it that let's not let's not offend unionism um let's uh, and again our friends who are unionists and loyalists and 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 yeah, you know we, we just you know they do not I. yeah but they, but i mean my point is that's when we talk we lose nuance when we think that it's all just um yep. it, you know it's one particular cohort that speak for them that's not true it's and what same way where if you just if you express a desire for a united ireland that doesn't mean you have to pass a Sinn Féin purity test all of a sudden but it does seem to be a thing but did anybody from the south other than ourselves actually say to you colin uh how how has this gone on and can we can we look into it well i think the the first thing to tony to, to to mention is really that you know myself and others have through Ireland's future and other things have been involved in a really broadly based civic discussion. So, you know, it's not party political. Try to, no matter how many times you get pummeled with that, try to underline that. Um, also, like in our previous discussion, it's connected to a broader change agenda on the island of Ireland. I've, I've been working on equality and rights, social justice issues across Ireland for decades, you know, for going back years and years and years. Um, well into the 90s, doing work on refugees and for refugees and asylum seekers in Dublin in the, the late 90s with Amnesty and others. And, you know, you build up a network of friends and solidarity over many decades on the island. And one of the things that's really just, you know, been overwhelming the last few weeks, a number of people who have, you know, WhatsApp, picked up the phone, text, message, whatever variety of multimedia messaging you can send today, just to express solidarity. And I think what that highlights to me is something we've talked about before. There's a real appetite on the island for change. Like, and I know this, that's the cliche of the day of you know party politics, but there's something true about that, that the people who are doing some of this are a minority. Um, maybe they're panicking a bit about where things might be going. You know, some of the things that we're talking about are going to rock the boat. You know, and the people who are, I'm going to strain this analogy to breaking point, but the people who are rowing the boat at the moment, you know, who are on that, maybe don't want that boat to be rocked. But I think ultimately, um, you know, it's been heartening to see the messages around this solidarity. And I think there's a broadly based movement on the island um, that wants something different north and south. And I suppose that is threatening. It's threatening to unionism in the north to some extent, or or elements of unionism, not all of it. And I wouldn't caricature that community at all. You know, it's a minority, minority position within unionism and loyalism. But also, I suppose, you know, you know yourselves, there's, a, there's people in the south who've been in power for a very long time. They quite like it. <laughs> They're I, I, probably I, looking and I, thinking, I, I, hmm. I, I think... You'll probably come across more intransigence there than you would north of the border. I mean, the concept of a united Ireland with a completely different different political system because you have to work north and south is terrifying for parties that are just barely clinging on here. Just barely clinging on to the hegemony. Their fingernails bed into it. They don't want to let it go. And any movement on the north is it is a threat to their power. You, I got, I got to make one point before you come yeah. in on that, Colin, yeah. and, I, and I'd like you to yeah. listen to me on this. Um, you, you've been involved with Ireland's future. You spoke at it recently that last weekend with our, our friend uh, Eva Grace Moore. Um, uh, but I, I, I know one prominent uh, Irish Dublin-based commentator spoke at it 
two ones back from you. And he said, oh, yes, this is going to happen. This is inevitable. And everybody applauded. And he said, it'll be within the next 50 years. <laughs> and and I was kind of the I, I felt like I was uh, um, screaming into the void because everybody said, didn't he do well? He said it's going to happen. And I went, yeah, but did you hear what he said? The last sentence, you know, and, 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 and there's very much that mindset when it comes to that, where it's, you know, every one of these, whether it be and Aoife, Aoife made the point to us yesterday that it's a huge political mistake by Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, the Greens and all the rest to cede the ground to Sinn Féin, because by actually just by making a statement saying, yes, we're all for this thing at some point out there in the ether. But 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 let's leave it out there. And I think that's that is that is going to be problematic because the the people are ahead of the politics again. I think that's absolutely spot on. You know, I, I do like obviously at the moment with the rise of Sinn Féin in the north and the south, people are talking about this and the possibility of Sinn Féin government in the south. But I, the governing parties at the moment don't need to wait and shouldn't wait. You know, and I think on that very in, it's intriguing to listen to. Interesting enough, Fina Gale, right? You know, on this that it's Leo Varadkar, it's Simon Coveney, Neil Richmond, for example, it's a great example of somebody on this issue who you know has produced a paper, is you know talking about it almost uh, daily at the moment. So um, you know that's notable, but no, I don't think they need to wait. I think look, an obvious point here is the asks at the moment from organisations like Ireland's Future are relatively modest. It's to the Irish government to set up a citizens' assembly. <laughs> like, it's not the, you know, um, it's it's to do the sensible preparatory work. What really worries me and what I think is a big problem at the moment is, you know, even that modest step seems to send people into, um, you know, uh, a tizzy about the whole debate. And I think that's really concerning because, you know, just to remind ourselves, you know, people, Irish government's going around the world telling everybody how much it loves a Good Friday Agreement, and everybody, and this is in the Good Friday Agreement. That's part of it. And if you can't talk about this after Brexit, you know, when there's an obvious way back to the European Union, then when can you talk about it? So, you know, call really call on the current government to, you know, step up on this issue. You know. Th- why wait around for Sinn Féin to do this when it looks likely they enter government the next time round? Why not sort of preempt them? You know, Miho Martin or Leo Varadka, you know, there's a big political legacy issue. Can you imagine, you know, to be the Taoiseach who, you know, initiated a process that led to reunification? I, you know, 50 years is a funny one, isn't it? You, that's a good one in terms of betting. You know, you can't be wrong. Like it's, it's yeah. probably as incredibly likely, but funny enough, it was an economist who said it. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> the next 500 years. Absolutely. You know, yeah. um, but I, I also think one of the things in Ireland, Irish context on this island really strikes me as weird is that, you know, British government hold the keys to starting off this. And I, I've often spoken to people in Dublin who say, well, well, you know, British government, it's up to them. It's up to them. It's like, yeah, the British government will start a process that's going to lead to fundamental change in your own country, in our own country, and you're not ready for it. That, And you've got this sort of off-the-wall Brexiteer British government that's, you know, as unpredictable as anything you can imagine, and you're not getting your uh, whatever's lined up now. But that seems think, to me massively irresponsible. Do you think they're prisoners of yeah. their own past as well? And like that uh, Fine Gael traditionally being the yeah. the, you know, pro-home rule, pro, 
treaty kind of, uh, th- that they've not been able to adapt to the position they are and that they're still entrenched in positions they held 100 years ago. Fianna Fáil maybe have changed, but from being more Republican to being less Republican, which is a very odd change because there is features of that party where they are very pro-Republican, but they don't seem to have a voice at the Fianna Fáil Ardèche. I think that's right. But but back to the point you've both made really today, which is people aren't waiting around for the main parties anymore. Like the, the number of projects that have already started that are funded, the university work that's ongoing on this, even stuff that the Shared Island Unit is doing in a rather sort of tepid, lukewarm, tentative way, is all preparing the ground for this really striking at the event in Derry. And it's, you know, a sense of which people are just getting on with it. Like the government will catch up. They'll catch up and, you know, they'll claim the credit. They'll say it was their idea and then they'll exclude us all. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Say you're not invited. So, <laughs> so they'll have a, they'll set up a forum and I, I, myself and others will all be excluded from it. It was their idea in the first place. So, but it's in the great agreement. It's actually in the Irish constitution. You know, we're all supposed to be committed to this thing. So preparing for it seems like a basic first step. Is there a way of having a citizen assembly outside of the structure of government? I think that's an intriguing question. One of the things that, that is happening on the island at the moment is universities. So, for example, in my own institution, um, actually in collaboration with, uh, I think it's UCD, um, some academics have been doing many deliberative uh, assemblies themselves where they've been getting on a smaller scale basis people in a room to ask them these questions. And that research has been published and out there. So it's just an example of the fact that you know, universities, civil society organizations themselves are also having these conversations among themselves on the island around better cooperation now. So I think the work's ongoing um, and really setting up a citizens assembly would be um, really a, a rather easy and modest thing. For the, like, I, I don't know about you, so I'm just completely baffled as to why they won't do it. Like, I just, I don't know. Uh, it I, seems I, really strange. I do want to go back to the, um, obviously the events of this week, the the the, the bloody Sunday, 50, it's 50 years. Um, and I want to put that in the context of we were driving into Derry yesterday and yeah. we see that we see before we get there that the last town, I'm not going to name names, don't want anybody pulling down anything. But, you know, you're driving past flags of, for paratroop regiments, you know, you're you're deliberately put up place to to cause I, I'm going to use the word incitement. Uh, this is you know, there's, there's things like that, that still there's an undercurrent there. And um we talk about truth and reconciliation, and I want to put again for listeners I want to con- contextualize this in the report that's come out about collusion, about how endemic and systemic it was, um, the settlement that only happened a few weeks ago with the with Stephen Travers and the survivor of the Miami Show Band, and what happened there, um, the attempt to of the British government to say we want to write the official history of the troubles, and then the other. Um, and other and then, fictions, and, and yes, but then and then the other solo run of, and we want an amnesty to to protect any any of this. So we talk about, and I go back to Stephen Travers, who was who was a, a gentleman, an absolute gentleman. He'll tell you, and he talks about truth and reconciliation. Justice, it seems, is beyond the reach when the British state have decided, you know, that that you know they can't act unilaterally, but they, you know, they can't take their they can't take their toys and go home. 
but it does seem truth and reconciliation seems to be something that even on the in in the south of the island we don't really want you to even engage in would you not just just um just swallow it and get on with it and i see it on the the pictures around in, in the in the museum and you're saying no i just I, I i can understand why people can't because we need to talk about it we need to if what's the you know, look the phrase has been said i think i think one of the first people to say it was cicero you know we have to learn from history or we are we never learn from history yeah. um I, the good friday agreement is work in progress you know there's there's no other way of putting that it, it's still work in progress the sort of culture of reconciliation mutual respect is still uh, to be achieved and it's evident this week that that is absolutely the case but you know one of the things we need to keep in mind is that you know sometimes there's a caricature about the north and actually there's a caricature about the island and they're often very far off the mark there there are solutions on the table there are proposals around legacy issues for example a Stormont house agreement and a comprehensive package of measures that are there that would help, you know, and what, and even around Brexit, right? In the last number of years on this island, we've had Brexit, we've had this Brexiteer government. Hardly a month goes by without a new provocation in relation to the agreement and the peace process. But people have very calmly and in a measured way responded with solutions and options and pragmatically in order to avoid. Uh, undermining what's already there. And I think we have to just salute that, pay tribute to that culture of, but you're dealing with um, a British government at the moment that has done, you know, if you were to try and sort of write a script in terms of a script involving uh, everything possible to destabilize peace, peace in the North, you know, it wouldn't look far off the record of this government for the last few years. They've been just negligent, reckless in the way they've handled things. But you know, solutions are there. We need to calmly work through those solutions. You know, my view remains the answers to these questions are on this island. You know, we share this island together. We're brothers, sisters, neighbours. Um, we have mechanisms there to try and heal the division on the island. But that division will only be healed at the far end of of ending the hard border on this island that is still there, you know, the invisible border, hard border between north and south partition you know we're not going to achieve the sort of reconciliation and healing needed if we keep turning our backs to each other keep keep avoiding you know really the constitutional question we keep saying we talk about it all the time we don't we talk around it we speculate about it we theorize in the abstract but you know all i've been doing the last few years is say well let's actually grapple with the constitutional question and end the division. You know, the carnival of reaction is real. You know, but people I, like myself have lived it, you know, I, in the I, North I, and want to bring it to an end. And but I think you're right. And I think this yeah. brings us back to this this notion that people can't be offended in any conversation. People are going to be offended by some of the I can confirm this, yes. You know, they are, but this is, you know, this is how you 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 make progress. You can't pretend the past never happened, uh, that the future doesn't exist. Martin, can I put it a bit different to yeah. how you, you just put it? Adrian Kerr, the curator of the of the museum, the the, the Museum of Free Dairy, said to us that he has this, he wants people to come and visit it and not accept it as they see it. Maybe they may be challenged by it. They may it may change it may change the perspective. It may do, but he would like to go to see other museums from other perspectives and other communities that would do something similar to him. 
And he said, as long as you leave with a determination for things to be better, that's that's the step forward. And I thought that was a really powerful point that he made and in, in, in that conversation he had with us. And I think that's what we're we're lacking here. It's this kind of you know, like our, in the in the south, we can't even we can't even acknowledge we're still screwing around on the on the Magdalens, the laundries, the mother and baby homes. I mean, we spoke to to survivors last Sunday, Martin, and they're disgusted about how things have gone one year after the apology. You know, oh, sorry, after the report, years after the apology, and they're still not getting what they want. So, uh, like. Colin is right that that, that the governments uh, are always well behind the people, but at the end of the day, someone has to grasp the nettle and actually, and and Colin, they'll be rewarded ultimately. Whoever does it, whether it's you know down someone down here steps up to the plate and and uh, because you you've an election coming in May and it's only going to get more toxic, unfortunately, in some of the discourse. I mean, you've seen it all all day today and watching Northern Ireland politics tear itself over, tear itself apart over problematic tweets now problematic tweets absolutely are there's no place for misogyny there's no place for sexism there's no place for racism but there's also seems to be no place for a debate for educational attainment you know fixing your housing crisis getting your uh, waiting list down dealing with the drugs drugs ec- epidemic people want people to get on with the bloody job of politics yeah but let's be clear even the issues just mentioned there you know there is a culture if you want to name it, of sort of toxic masculinity on the island, cultures of violence on the island, you know, that, like, let's let's be clear, north and south, going mm-hmm. back decades, violence everywhere, you know, in homes, in schools, and on the streets, conflict, you know, the idea that cultures of violence were the that, that, that we see up to the present day and the legacy of all that, that need, need to be... Uh, confronted but i suppose the work that involved in at the moment as well as around the future um you need to learn lessons from the past you can only do that with a accountability and acknowledgement of what actually happened you know some of the things that we're talking about now are being confronted now because we're able to on earth we were able to uh, excavate and show to the world what actually happened now? What the British government is doing at the moment is it's, it's beginning to realise, and I I think okay, we know it's bad now, right? Well, what we know, I think the picture that emerges when the truth sees the light of day about what happened in the north will be shocking. You know, the scale, depth, and extent of what the state was doing in the north will be even more shocking than it already is. But then that's about learning the lessons for the future. And I know, again, there's a cliche component to, to saying that, but it's is true. Like we want to think about the next hundred years to do things better. Um, but you can only do that if you confront the past face on and then make the present uh, better. I suppose your point gets at something we need to watch out for, but we can spend so much time talking about the past, so much time talking about the future that we skip the the present, you know, and, and, and are we actually doing things in the the here and now. But I think what interests me about some of this constitutional stuff is that it has transformative potential. Like people like me are involved in the discussion because we think the past was a disaster, <laughs> you know. Um, and I know there's this narrative now that, you know, the the, the South is is a great success and to say any problematic things is uh, you know, to 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 not be putting the green jersey on or whatever other cliche you want to use or whatever. But I think, you know, this, the, the past and the South need to be confronted honestly. 
So, you know, that's why human rights and equality are so much at the center of what I'm doing. Like, I still am optimistic, very, very positive uh, that this is a great opportunity, north and south, for us to be involved in the discussion about how we reimagine this place, this island, and recognize what's going well, recognize what's not going well. Uh, it's not been a complete disaster, north or south, but could we do things a lot better in the future? Yes, well, Let's do it. But to some people, look, and it's this goes back to the annoying some people. It is going to annoy some people because some people did all right. Let's be clear. Some people in the north, some people in the south did all right. Not everyone, but some people did. And so what we're talking about today is going to make them uncomfortable. But making people like that uncomfortable is part of the business of being involved in human rights, equality and social justice. That is absolutely true. And I also think the on the element of collusion we haven't had any discussion about collusion from the Irish state. And I think there may be a, a, a very real reluctance from the Irish state to re-examine its decisions and actions through the periods of the last 50, 60 years. I think there may be a very real reluctance to say exactly what the Irish state knew and when it knew it. Again, absolutely back to the earlier point. But I think on this, Martin, you know, again, it's there are proposals there for how we begin to get at this stuff. So I think, you know, my frustration at the moment for a number of us is just getting on with getting those implemented. And that's where the blockage is. You know, we have an unwritten rule here that, you know, the person has to be dead before you can talk about what happened. So I think we're, we're kind of leaning down. The government is kind of leaning towards that, that, you know, I got, I got, I got to use the quote that uh, the mother and baby home survivor, Noel Brown, Brown uses delay, deny and wait for me to die. But you know what the great tragedy is, and it's echoing back to what Bernadette and Joe um, said recently, is that you know, just thinking with my academic hat on, a sort of archival hat and, and other things, pe- people are dying in the North now with tales to tell yeah. about what happened to people, uh, to what actually happened here. And th- that hasn't been recorded we don't have records of that. Some of that stuff was never written down for obvious reasons. And I think there's a great tragedy in that for me to future generations that the the complexities, nuances, the human stories and narratives of this conflict, the truth of what actually happened in all its horrendousness, I think, and all its uh, complexity and nuances being lost, the humanity of all that's being lost, uh, because we haven't sorted this out. And I think that's a tragedy for people in the here and now. But for the future, people looking back at what actually happened here, like even now, and I've seen, in the reaction to what Joe Brawley said and, and some of the consequences for Joe in speaking out loud, you're actually facing a situation where people who grew up in the North can't speak honestly and openly about what actually happened here, uh, whether that's in unionist, loyalist communities or nationalist, Republican communities. And we're losing something really valuable there. And I think we need to think about that. I think that's um, really a, a very important point. I mean, we, you know, Ireland has quite a, I'm going to, like, Ireland has a very small history when it comes to, say, our Jewish community. Mm. But, but we would never, ever consider saying, let's, let's not hear what we did, how we, how we dealt with it, but we shouldn't. And we, you know, we speak to people within that community and they, they talk about it. Likewise, when we have people, new communities who, who've grown up in Ireland now the last few years, and yet we seem to have this reluctance when it comes to ideas because we, we've just painted it in a simple green and orange brush and we thought that that was going to be good enough. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, 
I've only one more kind of um, question to put to you, Colin, and it's about the the marking these these events. Obviously, Bloody Sunday is is a, is one of the atrocities that is known. It's been fame. It's famous. It's it's it, you know, and it's infamous, and it's it's tragic, and it's really it's really poor. Um, it's it's one of those events where like we were walking the streets yesterday in Derry, and it was quite poignant of how like it's li- you can point at the spots you can there's bullet holes still in still in one of the buildings that we went yeah. past but how do we how do we actually reconcile that with ultimately um making sure that it's it serves the greater good and i mean that for all on the island including the communities like the unionists and loyalists who 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 as, as you know will will say to you i'm a british citizen and that is how that is. We have to find that place for them as well. And 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 they, and, and that sounds like I'm othering them. I'm not. There's, there's just a place at the table for everybody. Whether just some might people, some people might come along later to the dinner table, but we might get them there eventually, hopefully. That's a that's a great point. Look, I'm. I think myself, although a lot of the work at the moment is on the future, we can't forget, and we have to remember, and we have to keep those memories very much front and center of planning for the future as well, because otherwise we're not going to learn the lessons. We're just going to keep trotting out standard lines. We're going to keep having public inquiries after the same thing happened again and again and again in different circumstances. So unless we remember and remember what happened and the legacy of what happened, we're just going to repeat it in different contexts into the future. I think there's an issue around, you mentioned the Museum of Freed Derry and how you capture those memories in a reflective way and create spaces for people to remember and acknowledge the reality of what happened. Uh, you know, the difficulty in the North is the lack of accountability. Like I keep saying it around the state, you know, I mean, there's been so little accountability around what the state did here. And that's our ongoing problem. But I think also, you know, maybe a final point is that we have a habit of stereotyping and caricature people. We have a habit of attaching labels to people that are intensely reductionist all over this island. And I think some of the brilliant work that's ongoing, you know, innovative, imaginative work, media work, you know, podcasts, other, you know, what newspapers are doing and television, the narrative voice of actually looking at the complexity of the lives of people on this island in the north and Derry and others, the interconnectedness of people and no way to dodge the difficult questions or to neglect the horror of what has actually happened. To think about the human stories and the human context that led to circumstances arising where Bloody Sunday happened and also what Bloody Sunday led to in the city, how many young people then had transformed transformed their own lives by decisions that they made around that day and understanding the the context of that and then not repeating it. And for me, increasingly, that's also about not repeating it because whether it's in the context of the North or some other institutional context that we're thinking thinking about, that what are the key lessons that we mainstream them in the present and we don't repeat them in the future, but in terms of work I do, Aaron's future and university work around the constitutional question, you know, people should be assured, like, we're all fundamentally conscious of the mistakes of the past. Nobody is involved in this discussion 
for revenge or to get one up on somebody else. Um, it was a nightmare. It was a horror show. Nobody wants any of that again. So, you know, the pillars for how you do that are in place. And it's about respecting those, that people will be welcome. And sometimes, you know, it's not about telling on a podcast or anywhere else. Sometimes it's about showing to people through your actions that you respect them and they'll be safe uh, on this island. Whatever happens, the British identity, uh, British citizens will be safe. Ulster British Unionist identity will be looked out for, taken care of, obligations will be respected. Uh, the mistakes of the past won't be repeated. You know, the Irish government and state won't do what the British government and state has done. And sometimes show, not tell, to demonstrate that, that uh, you know, we're, we're better off together on the island. That's going to be hard work. It's going to be turbulent. It's going to be challenging and difficult. There'll be a minority, a small minority that resists that very intensely. But it's an end goal that's worth it, you know, and I think just keep working calmly uh, and cooperatively and collaboratively together. And, uh, you know, my own view is Southern Saturday, I think we'll get there. Used analogy of a marathon. I do a lot of runs, you know, and the way you finish a marathon is you do the preparation and planning. And then the marathon's your lap of honour. And I think we're on the final five or six miles of that journey. And it might be difficult. It's going to hurt perhaps at times, but I think it'll be worth it in the end. Professor Colin Harvey, thank you very much for having this conversation with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. As uh, as the foremost runner on this podcast, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I finished those last five or six miles with my hands above my head, folks. Just, uh, just, uh, uh, no, really, I've already done a couple of marathons. Uh, Colin, I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. And I think that that like that's, that is the message you want to bring forward. We will be continuing to cover these events and we're hoping to uh, get a few um, more uh, we're, we're going to be doorstepping a few people in Derry yeah. Art, and so yeah, got to talk to everybody too. Let's let's see how that no goes. No better place, no and, better place. Uh, oh no, hang on, we have, I forgot that uh, Professor Colin Harvey, man who left uh, uh, the the first city of Northern Ireland to go to the second city. Fair play to you. It's good to see you. Absolutely, <laughs> been downgraded to Belfast. But, uh, <laughs> so, folks, we'll be back to you soon. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Next, we're going to go to. Uh, Adrian Kerr, and Adrian is the curator of this museum, Tony, that we're sitting in. Um, we talked about sites of conscience, and, and sites of conscience, like the like the dairy, for, uh, the the Museum of Free Dairy, are very important. And we discussed sites of conscience and how we needed them all around the country. And we also discussed other aspects of sites of conscience that we could do within this country, like uh, for Magdalene laundries. For the children that that are in tune, like we, there's so much of our history that we don't have anything to recognize it by, and these sites of conscience are absolutely important to learning each other's history, to learning the history that we're not taught, and to enabling us to move forward as a people on an island. Tone. So next, we're going to go to Adrian. Welcome back to our ongoing coverage of. The 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Um, as I said to you earlier, Martin, it is a privilege to be sitting here in the Museum of Free Dairy. Martin. Yes, I keep saying the Free Museum. It's the, it's the, <laughs> these these it's at it easy. again. We are <laughs> thrilled to be sitting down with the curator, um, Adrian Kerr. Adrian, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. No problem at all. Glad to 
glad to be with you today. This is both of us the first time we've actually uh, entered the museum and we're both taken aback by obviously the, the imagery, but I, I keep going back to it on the, the first mural I see says anti-sectarian and, you know, everywhere I see, I see messages of civil rights marches, uh, festivals of the oppressed. As the curator, the message I get very, very strongly is not one of green and orange, but of one of human and human rights and human dignity. Is that something that is really central to this place? It is. I mean, we set the museum up to tell a story of a civil rights struggle. And not just to do that, but to be a museum about civil rights and about other civil rights struggles. If you go back to the 1960s, what Negra and others set out to do, there was nothing sectarian about nothing party political about it at all. They wanted equality. They wanted equality for everyone. It wasn't a green and orange thing. Unfortunately, the the unionist government at the time is what turned it green and orange. It was classic divide and rule. You know, convince one side that they're going to lose out if the other side gets equality and turn the two sides of the working class against each other. Mm. That that actually is a point that we keep coming back to uh, that there is, and I think um, Eva Moore said to us that you know reading Bernadette, Bernadette Devlin McCallie's book that she said if the two working class communities got together, rather we, we we'd have we'd have had a much better Northern Ireland than we than we've had for the last number of decades. But but when you set out to do this, I mean obviously. The atrocity of Bloody Sunday is is a is a central point of the museum. So you, there's no getting away from it. What was the significance for for you as as a as a, as a young man, and and how did that shape your views, especially when you bring them forward into creating a museum like this? I mean, as a Republican growing up in the North, I was only three years old at the time of Bloody Sunday, so it didn't have that immediate impact on me. I'm also one of the few people involved in this project who isn't local and who isn't directly connected to the story, but I suppose growing up, as soon as I was old enough to understand politics, understand what was going on around me, you know, I, I saw it for the injustice it was and it had a big impact on me. Now, for someone my age, I suppose the pivotal point would have been the hunger strikes. So that was the time I was reaching the age to really understand and, and question, you know, move from throwing stones at Brits as a kid to asking yourself why you're throwing stones at them. But I suppose for other people, people 10 years older than me, Bloody Sunday was that turning point that like Saville, what I know Saville said about it being a tragedy for the entire North. To me, Bloody Sunday was the day that really set us on the course to the long war. This this museum here, and we've we've spoken about this and the work that has gone in, and this how this started out as three flats or, or three flats, and it has developed into this, which is absolutely fabulous facility. It is a fabulous facility. It has become a, more than just the a museum for free dairy. Is it is it a focal point for people in the community? Well, it, it, it is more than a museum for free dairy. First off, it is that museum. It's the museum to tell the free dairy story for the people of free dairy. You know, they had a history, have a history that was very famous, but always told from the outside. You had the British government version, you had the international media version. It didn't give their account. So, yes, on that level, it is the museum of free dairy and the museum for free dairy. But we were very conscious when we were building it. We want uh, not just a museum about our civil rights struggle, but a museum about civil rights. You know, and we want to be able to reflect other issues, not just the, the 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 key issues in the 1960s, but issues in the North and the rest of Ireland that are still prevalent today. But also 
always take an international look at things. I mean, we specifically make reference in the, in the museum to other international state massacres. I'm sure you've seen the Palestinian flags. Yes, indeed. Yeah. One of the pieces of work we did recently that we were very proud of was to pull together a major exhibition on the LGBTQ history of the North, which is sort of stands alone mm. when you look at it in comparison to other places. So yes, it's to answer your question, it is the Museum of Free Dairy, but we want it to be a lot more than that. There's a big push, and it's very difficult um, in Dublin to, for a site of conscience. We, we talk about, you know, the, the Magdalens, the laundries, the mother and baby homes, and Ireland not reconciling at how it treated um, single single women. Women were convicted of having sex effectively. Yeah. This strikes me as, as, as something that, you know, also as a side of conscience as well. for where cause, Because you cannot look on any wall and not be taken back by, especially as someone from the South who turns around and has to put up with the stuff of like, them ones were bad and them ones were, were just as bad. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or do you, is this just something that you look at and say, well, as a side of conscience, if that's what it pricks about, if that's how, it, if that's how I feel about it, maybe, maybe that's a good thing as, as someone who's from Dublin. Well, there is an organisation called the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience and we have been a member of that for, for a long time and been very active in the European wing of it. And first comment something referencing the Magdalene Laundries really should be set up and should be a part of that. But yeah, I mean, we do want to prick people's consciences here. We do want to make them think. Now, it's not about making people angry. It's not about, you know, trying to create revenge or bad feeling. It's about trying to create understanding and acknowledgement that, that people know what really happened here, not necessarily what they've seen in the press over the years or read about in the books, but actual real experiences, what actually happened here. And I mean, I've been asked a few times in the past about how, how I would like people to leave this museum feeling. And again, I don't want them leaving feeling angry. I think mm. the, the, the one word I would like to push into people's head maybe is determination because what can be lost in here, maybe, and what is a very, very dark story are two clear stories that are very positive. I mean, the civil rights movement was ordinary people getting off their knees and they succeeded within a short period of time. They had their first three demands. The story of the Bloody Sunday Justice campaign, the same. A bunch of families who had been bereaved at the hands of the state. After years of being forced into silence, they got together, they fought. And they changed history. They, they forced the British government to withdraw a public, a judicial inquiry and institute a new one. They forced an apology out of the British government. So there's two very strong stories in here that if you, if you fight, you can do it. And I think they're very, very important. It's coming out, this is the 50th anniversary. And as you said yourself, you're only three when this happened. So in living memory, it's beginning to fade in living memory. And I think we all acknowledge that, that it is. Is this week even more important, this 50th anniversary? Because there is no other way forward. There, the, the courts have been effectively shut down. Um, there's not going to be anybody put on trial. So is this, week really important sort of as a a 50 year round of, of determination of of 
fight in your corner of standing for what you believe is right. And of course, all the international press is going to be on this this week. Is it really important to get that message out that, that you know, there, this is a shared experience and there is no other way to do this now? There is simply no other way to do it. Well, first off, the idea that it's all over. You know, I, I, I would say that's just because the British wanted to be all over doesn't mean it is all over and there are legal moves being taken here but you know mm-hmm. Boris Johnson and his ilk want to end all legacy investigations that does not mean they'll get away with it but the the, the 50th is a as you said the, the world's press will be here it's going to be a very well covered event and it's it's a really good opportunity to get the message out to get the message out about Bloody Sunday what happened, what has happened since what the current status is but also, hopefully, to, to provoke people into asking the question, well, what else is there? You know, the Bloody Sunday families forced the truth, truth out. What other truths need to be forced out? And we've seen just recently the the report last week into the Northwest UDA and mm. the, the levels of collusion that was going on there. When you go back to even as far as Stevens 3, and he talks about, you know, arresting over 200 loyalists and only seven of them weren't state agents that, you know, this is a good opportunity to keep the focus on, I think, the British role in the conflict. You know, they're, they're the ones that still present themselves as peacekeepers in the middle between two warring tribes, which is absolute rubbish. I mean, the British were competent here. They say they were only responsible for 10% of the deaths, so why shouldn't be so much focus? Again, absolute rubbish. I mean, when you take in the collusion, they were responsible for an awful lot more than 10%. So, yes, we're focusing on one big state atrocity but it's an opportunity to look and there are events bringing this up it's an opportunity to look at others as well to look at the whole issue of state violence and hopefully throughout the year not just state violence in the north but other states and other violent incidents you you as the curator of this you know the interest in this place and you know the international interest do you think something like this should be replicated across other parts of ireland i would love to see museums like us across the north and you know, we are working with other groups from all sections of the community towards trying to encourage this. Now, it's important that people get to tell their own story. Uh, we have massively different perceptions of history in the North, mm. and that has been a real cause of division. To get it to be something more that's a, a cause for discussion, the first thing we need to do is to understand what other people's stories are. And to me, to really do that, to have people have to be telling their own story and have to be encouraged and enabled and facilitated to do that. It's not about historians and journalists and stuff like that telling it. It's about people who are actually there. Now, if we see a whole range of these museums set up across the north, there'll be a lot of them I completely disagree with the content. But I want to be able to go there and see what the content is mm. and discuss why we disagree with it. And it's it's the same in here, you know. We get a lot of people. From well, that's the that's the that's the reconciliation piece past truth. You, we've spoken about the truth, and then it moves to reconciliation in in terms of how that mindset. But something strikes me really, and I, I didn't think I'd mention this, but two things: we obviously speak to Gareth Mulvena, who was a, a nationalist but a, a historian of loyalism, um, and he talks about the stories of the Tartan gangs and and and, and those issues, but. The other thing that we've seen, and you mentioned Boris Johnson and his amnesty and his attempt to uh, make it all go away, was the, we're going to write the official history of the Troubles. And you're the curator of this museum. 
you must have, I mean, this is a podcast, folks. You can't see the smile on, on Adrian's face, but he's clearly, it must have been one of the most deeply unimpressive things you've ever heard that we're going to give this official version of the Troubles. Yeah, I mean, that was, not, not only for me, but I've been talking to others who would do similar jobs to me. I mean, let's see, I've written a couple of history books in my time. I'm an Irish Republican. That's the sort of background I come from. Is somebody going to trust me to write the official history of the North? So why should we trust somebody else who's been a comment in this and has been so one-sided? Plus, people who have such so blatantly got an agenda there hmm. in terms of they want to write the history of the North so they can write themselves out of it. Yeah, and the, the, it is. Well, he who pays the he who pays the piper calls the tune. But there, there isn't one history of Northern Ireland. No, there are many histories. The idea that there has to be one history is, to me, is both pointless, it's unachievable, and it's irrelevant. You know, I have my view of the history of the North. There are certain facts and figures. We know what dates happened. We know how many people were killed in here and how, stuff like that. But it's the perception of history. It's how you viewed it. It's so different. Now, when loyalist unionist groups come to this museum, we want them to leave understanding what happened here. We don't expect them to leave converted to our way of thinking. And to go back to the earlier remark I made about people like me being able to go to museums that we disagree with, I'm not going to go in and come out loyalist. But I want to be able to come out, understand a wee bit more about what the community in question went through. And we all have, our, as you say, our own histories, and we're all entitled to. And we don't need to take that away. We just need to move to a point where there's something that we talk about rather than fight about. One last thing from me, and you've, you've talked about people giving and sharing their own personal experience of this. We have a facility in the South that allows us to do this called the Citizens' Assembly. Would you like to see the issue of United Ireland, indeed the issue of legacy um, issues within Northern Ireland, raised in a Citizens' Assembly in the South so that everybody can come along and have their say? A United Ireland, when it happens, is going to affect the South as much as the North. Why it's not being discussed enough down there is beyond me. You know, it, personally, I feel it, it's inevitable. I, I've lived my life wanting United Ireland yesterday. Now I've got to the point where I sort of feel, yes, this is coming. It's probably not too far off. So let's do what we can to get it right. Let's examine the question. Let, let's discuss all the different options. And when we do go for a vote on it or whatever, let's make everything clear. I mean, we've seen what a yes-no vote can do in 2016, mm. where we end up with this massive Brexit that nobody knows what to want. I don't want that coming after a, a unity referendum. I want a vote that, first off, I want a vote that leads to unity. But I want the questions be, to be and the discussion beforehand to be defining what that uni is, because to me it has never been we are simply joining the South. I, it's a new Ireland. I put it to you that we're sitting here and you have a civil rights banner behind you, and it has to be a rights-based society. It has to be a society where everybody on this island has their rights respected and protected, where everybody feels comfortable and where everybody feels welcome. Adrian? Thanks very much for having this conversation with us. It is really our greatest pleasure to come up here and have this conversation. I can't express that enough. It really is. And we're delighted to come along. And we are so impressed by the museum. I highly recommend that everybody comes and has a visit. I really do. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back soon. We have uh, another couple of people lined up and we really do. Again, I can't. Martin is right. It's a great privilege to sit here and have these conversations. Thanks so much. We shall overcome. It feels strange to be finishing this podcast knowing that there's actually more to come, knowing that hopefully we'll have spoken to a few more um People on the streets of Derry, Martin has a Vox Pop mic with him. We're hoping to 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 do those. And, and again, you know, we'll be putting them out to our patrons as quickly as we can. It's it's not as it's not as easy to, to do these things as on the go. But nonetheless, um, it's been very informative and a, a little bit um how do I put this? I wasn't knowing I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't expecting it to be as bigger thing as it really is martin like i mean we 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 think we we say the words bloody sunday and we don't know how heavy that hangs in the city of Derry and on the streets of Derry, you can put your fingers in the bullet holes. If you can climb up a little bit and, you know, get up at that building and you can say there was someone shooting from that window. There was um, CS gas there. People were doing this. And, and when you see the murals and you see all of the, all of the things and, and we see again the same struggles, and the struggles remain. The struggles are still the struggles for for tackling inequality, good housing. You know, at the time it was, we laugh now. We talk about Trump uh, gerrymandering when he was trying to, you know, suppress votes. That's what was happening. That's what was happening here, and it was much worse than that. Absolutely much worse. But let's tell the truth here: the struggle for civil rights, for a rights-based society, continues. It does. And it's there's still a very much a sense of divided community, Tony, and we saw that on the drive-in. Um, there is a, a, and it's a horrible sense of divided community, uh, two separate camps. There, the, it, it may not be as bad as it was in the past, and we did discuss that with with those we were talking to. There is more. The lines aren't as definite as they used to be, and and. That's progress, but it's very slow. And in some places, there are very severe lines of who is who. I think, and I I say this hand on heart, I thought I knew Derry before I went to Derry. And it was my first time in Derry. And I'm going to admit that it was the first time I was ever in Derry. But I thought I knew it after seeing it on the TV. I, I thought I knew it after seeing all the stories, but I didn't. I knew nothing about it. Nothing absolutely nothing and it was good to be able to come to it without any preconceptions without any um memory of of lived history of it and i was living through other people's lived history of it i just find it a place that's there's a tinge of sadness always with everybody in everything and um I think that there has to be reconciliation. There has to be some way forward. I'm just not sure how they're going to find it, Tony. Well, actually, I this I think you've touched on something, whether you know it or not. It's not for them to find it. It's for the rest of us to find it. If the challenge goes out to those communities, the challenge goes out to our leaders, our political leaders, who, whether they want to say it or not, or admit it or not, have looked upon them as less than. You know that. You know, as I said, like Tony spoke about the fact that presidents wouldn't meet them. They wouldn't yeah. come. They wouldn't come on board. They wouldn't. They wouldn't help the families. That's on us. So, so that's on. That's on Dublin. That's on Cork. That's on Limerick. That's on Galway. That. That's a. I, I, I put it. I put it to you. That's on London. 
but it's, but it's a lot of it too is on on media representation. What are acceptable voices, Tony? I I don't want to go down that road because I very much think that if that the media represents the the people who pay for it, Martin, and and the people who pay from the top down and from the bottom up. So there was an, there was a comfortable there was if if there was been proper political leadership, you wouldn't see a situation whereby. You know, anybody who puts themselves in, in that situation where they are seen to be, you know, um, talking about Bloody Sunday is automatically labeled a shinner or a sympathizer for terrorism or all this. And that nonsense still exists. I mean, we only have to look at the people setting up daft um, online Twitter accounts to, to, to troll people to, to, to make these claims. It's it, it, it exists in media, but it. More importantly, it comes from our politics, and it, and 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 within our society, there's a laziness. There's an I absolute see, laziness. See, there's where I, I kind of disagree with you. I think had platforms like this existed back then, and had we had the access that we have now to be able to network and use social media and talk to each other directly, I think that there would have been more of an impetus. I'm not saying it would have got there. I'm not saying it would have been perfect. I think we would have heard more diversity of stories, would have heard more voices. But at the time when all of this was, you've got to remember too, people were censored through all of this and we weren't able to hear the voices and we weren't able to talk to the people. Disagree. I'm going to disagree with you entirely. Um, of course you could. Of course you could. You, you just had to, you had to get out of the mindset that the government allowed us to have that they're each as bad as each other, that they're all at it. They're all, you know, why, why were they arrested? Even though those, you know, so, so the usher, they must've been storing guns for the Ra. They must've been doing all of those things. Martin, you go to any GA match now today and tell me that a team from the North doesn't have to put up with that kind of rhetoric put towards them. Oh yeah. So, so, so don't tell me that it's not prevalent. It is prevalent. Don't tell me that the reaction to simple statements of fact of how people feel by Joe Brawley and Bernadette Devlin McCallisky were met with such outrage by, by aspects of the Irish commentariat. Don't tell me that that doesn't tell. That's telling on yourself when you do that, by the way. That's actually admitting that. Uh, I Look, I, I do think that that listening to voices is extremely important. I think we, we were denied for a very long time the ability to listen to voices. And I want to say one thing as well, like Sam McElwain, who comes on our podcast regularly from the loyalist community, he's receiving death threats currently. Yeah. I mean, what the f- are we at here? Like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, like, I, mean I know, I know th- this guy is a credit to his community, an absolute credit. And yet he's receiving this sort of nonsense. So I just find it's not it's not confined to one tribe. It's not green and orange. The struggle actually is for class struggle. And, and, and that's the real the real essence of this. But but I do think look, it's been brilliant to be able to do this. It's been has been brilliant, Martin. Let's yeah, tell, I, yeah, I loved listening to other people's voices talk about what they knew and what they knew intimately. Um, and it, it was just enlightening and I really enjoyed it. Listen, folks, there is obviously a lot of podcasts come out on the Tortoise Shack. You might be listening for the first time, maybe, maybe dip in again the next time and and, and see what other aspects we cover. Um, but but this has been a terrific uh few days we will probably have more content as as the as the as the march happens as the walk happens and we'll we'll do our best to to bring people that coverage as well um but i do want to thank uh the 
Museum of Free Dairy, the staff and Adrian for um, uh, welcoming us in and giving us this this opportunity to hear the stories, as Martin put it, and to to actually get uh, get it under your fingernails a little bit. We got dairy under our fingernails, Martin, and and I'm not too I'm not too worried about it. No. No, no, I quite enjoyed it, Tony, and it's, it's lovely to meet people from other parts of the country and discuss what, what they're doing and how they're doing it, and I, and I love the platform that we're able to do it, I just do. Talk to you soon, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. We shall Oh. Uh-huh.